0: It's the same thing that we said pre-pandemic. It's the same thing that we said 10 years ago. It's the same thing we said 20 years ago. This is stuff that doesn't change. First priority is to get your savings in cash, in in the bank, in a comfortable place to cover your near-term emergencies. Make sure that you're living within your means and not overfilling your credit cards. And then start allocating money to your future. Get well diversified if you have enough money that you're having difficulty figuring out where to do that and how to do that. Once more onto the breach, dear friend. Else fill up the wall with our English debt. Welcome back. Um, this is the personal wealth coach. We're back a little bit early this hour. We're going to be talking again more on lots of subjects that have happened this week in the economy, uh, and we'll probably get in. You know, we talk about the savings rate and so on. We're, we're, I think we're likely to get into some of the personal financial planning type issues. Rather, we've covered the macro really, really well. We've got some more macro stuff to cover in that. Uh, this week, uh, President Biden met with a couple of people in his office. Did you read about that? Uh, yes, several different. Which one yeah. are you referring to? Uh, uh, Dr. Powell and Dr. Brainerd separately. So yeah. what are we talking about here? Uh, it's Job no- interviews. Yeah, it's November at a point six years after the current chair of the Federal Reserve was approved. So his term ends early next year. It expires in January. Chairman Powell's term ends. Uh,
1: not the yes, president's term. Not the
0: president's term. Yes. So, right. uh, I think actually it goes through March. Well, I don't know why I said January. It goes through March, but it has. He has to be whoever's going into that role has to be approved by the Senate. And if you have watched what's happened in um, Congress over the past several months, you realize that. They have a different kind of time in in that building. It's, it is, sometimes it is they compact a bunch of time into a very short period, and other times they stretch out very short things into extremely long. So he met with two people this week. Chairman Powell, who uh, we have good things to say about. Uh, we think he's done a fantastic job as chair of the Federal Reserve. But also... Uh, he had a separate meeting with Fed Governor Lael Brainard, who's also a, a doctor, uh, an economist. She went to Harvard and is a professor of economics at MIT Sloan School of Business. Now, I get some of my continuing education through MIT's Sloan School, so I have to say that that I've spoken to her multiple times. And she's brilliant, uh, so I don't know it, if if this if this is just the time that we live in, but both of these two people that are kind of the top of the list. Uh, anyway, Lael Brainerd is brilliant. Jerome Powell is brilliant. So we live in a time where it looks like the two potential candidates are about as good as you can get. So- I would say, though, that
1: removing Chairman Powell at this point would be a shock. Yeah, it would. It would be a very, very bad thing to do. I agree. Um, the markets have a lot of confidence in Chairman Powell. He's done an exceptionally good job, and to suddenly remove him and replace him with somebody that, and be frankly, the progressives want her in there,
0: right, to be an activist. So, and yeah, and what I well, not her. She. This is the this is the thing. There's another vacancy popping up on the board. There's another vacancy. The vice chairman. Richard Clarida is ending his term in January. This is the peak of excitement in the music here. Okay, it's coming down. Thank you. Um, uh, chair, uh, Fed Vice Chairman Clarida, his term expires in January. So it looks like... But he stays on the board. He'll stay on the board, but they need a new vice chairman. So Somebody in charge of vice. Yes, all the vices of the Federal Reserve... Um, but the, the vice chairman is appointed by the president and approved by the Senate as well. So I suspect that Jerome Powell is going to be the next chairman, and I suspect that Leo Brainerd is going to be the next vice chairman. Uh, Janet Yellen was vice chairman before she was chairman, and this is a very normal kind of buildup. This is who we think is going to be next. So as boring as the Biden administration is they're at least sending out the signals that the people that watch this stuff know how to read to say he is kind of quietly announcing that he thinks it's going to be Powell as chairman and Brainerd as vice chairman. The market hasn't reacted to that. Nobody's, no blips or anything. There was some pretty good coverage on it in the Wall Street Journal. And what that means is that everything around the, the Federal Reserve needs lots of Communication about events that happen in the future because the worst case scenario is the market is surprised by something at the Federal Reserve. I cannot remember a time when there's been a good reaction to a surprise at the Federal Reserve from the market. Even good surprises tend to lead to bad reactions from the market at the Federal Reserve because everybody wants to not be surprised there. We want to know what's going to happen in the future and who's in charge, who's making the decisions, and how long that's going to be. So th- that's all good news, in my opinion. Um, and I think I've covered the the meeting at the White House now enough for these two positions. I think that, that's as much of the tea leaves as we could read, but it looks like Powell is likely to stay as chairman, and it looks like Brainerd may be vice chairman, which is both of those positions— I can't think of anybody who'd be better for the job right now.
1: All right. Can we talk about, I want to talk about Neil Gallagher for a minute. Let's do it. Neil Gallagher, who had a radio show on Christian radio station out of Dallas for years, um, called himself the money doctor, called himself Doc Gallagher. And his organization, he had an interesting organization. The, the, um, Neil Gallagher organization was, had the, term phd in it so it it sounded like he had a phd which by the way he didn't um and interestingly he spent years
0: it sounded like he had a phd he went by the nickname doc and phd was in the name of the company
1: right he went for years on the radio in the dallas fort worth area where the sec has an office by the way proclaiming his wisdom and his experience and that he was going to provide Christian guidance. And, uh, and in fact, uh, he, he wrote a couple of, he published a couple of books, whether he actually wrote it or not, that focused on Christianity and investing. And people gave him a lot of money. So how do you avoid this type of thing happening? Well, for starters, William Neil Gallagher was never registered with the SEC or the state of Texas as an investment advisor, nor was his company registered as an investment advisor. So the first thing you do if you are working with somebody who claims to want to advise you on investing, get their name, get the name of their company, and uh, go to the SEC website, which will direct you to another website, and check them out and see if they're registered. Very simple process, uh, but you do need to do that process. He was never registered anywhere. He was never an investment advisor. And if a person is giving you investment advice and they're, and you're paying them, you're giving them money and they're taking money to do it. By law, they have to be registered as an investment advisor or an investment advisor representative.
0: Yeah. So so this is this is where we're kind of the nitty gritty on this the sec charged him in 2019 and said hey you got to shut down the state found him guilty and charged him money and sentenced him to 25 years and now the federal government has done the same found him guilty and given him life in prison um and the sec says this it's a classic ponzi scheme he instead of and this is what he promised. He promised his investors 5 to 8% a year, um, and he would be investing in a stable retirement fund, but he didn't really specify that. Instead, he deposited all the investors' money into one account. Everybody's money went into one account that he controlled and used to make payments to the early investors. To and say- he was making... That's pure Ponzi there. That is exactly what a Ponzi is.
1: He was making up statements issued by his organization. They were fake. Showing where the investments were supposedly held, but they weren't. Here's the second thing I think that's very important. If you are working with somebody who's part of some organization and they're giving you investment advice, are you receiving statements from somebody else?
0: Are you receiving audited statements?
1: Are you receiving a statement from a major firm that's recognizable. And if you contact that firm where the statement is supposedly coming from, and by the way, if you get the statement in the mail, it should be coming from there. But many times we get them by website or email now. So that's a little harder. If you, and it's just sensible, contact the custodian, whoever the custodian is. And the custodian should not be the person who's giving you investment advice. So this is, this is a hard one.
0: I have to make a correction here real quick. Um, he went as doc Gallagher and the money doctor he had a phd in philosophy he did yes so okay. he did have a phd but it had nothing to do with money It had to do with yeah. philosophy the well, yeah
1: I won't go into that one anyway he he um if you if you your money is someplace being held by a custodian and in our opinion and this is just our opinion it's not Rock solid. The person who is investing the money for you should not be the custodian. That leaves yourself wide open to being involved in a Ponzi's game. If there is a well known, well established firm that you can find references to and it's out there, and you contact them and say, Is my money there? Do you have my investments? People, whoever sends you a statement, do you have my investments? and you recognize that firm, they're a member of the New York Stock Exchange, for example, which they should be, then you're probably at least not in a Ponzi scheme. But it's really important that you not just passively say, this guy talks a good talk. He's spoken at our church. He's a Christian. uh, He's a Christian. He's got a radio show. Therefore, let's give him the money. And as long as the money comes in, we're happy. There are a lot of people Many, many, many people over a hundred, probably around, I think they said 190 who have lost in some cases, everything they have. They've, they've lost all their savings. They've lost all their retirement income. They've lost everything and they won't get back very much of it at all.
0: Yeah. There were a series of people testifying in the sentencing part of this. And by the way, it was three life sentences for an 80 year old. I don't know how long that's going to be. I don't think he's got three lives left, but at court. Dozens of victims testified um, describing how they were forced to sell their house, to borrow money from their children, take part-time jobs, to supplement their Social Security, because he took all their money.
1: And it gets worse. A lot of the people who he gave money to are now going to have to cough that, in other words, the people, the early investors that he started who actually probably see have seen a profit over the years. Are going to have to return that money to the trustee appointed by the court, or they get sued.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, Court Thomas is the guy in charge of that, and he's he's estimating twenty three million dollars in losses, and he's re- re- returned three point three million so far, but that comes from clawing it back from people who got it as pay that they thought was theirs, and this has happened over decades receiving stolen property, even if you don't know it's stolen, it still doesn't belong to you. And this is something that we talked about when Bernie Madoff was in the headlines. It's something that we talk about now. What you said before, making sure that you have a statement from a third party saying that you actually have the value that the person tells you you have is vital. And you and I have both run into this Many times in our career, people come in with statements and say, I want to take a look at these investments. And then I look at the statement, and it's not a statement, and it's got typos all over it, and it was printed out from the office of the person who invested it there, and I say, do you have anything else that shows that you have money somewhere? And they say, no, but he's a trustworthy guy, and that's always where it goes. And in in all of that, I've seen this, how many times? Maybe five times in my career. I've seen something as blatant as this, but on a much smaller scale. And unfortunately, most of these cases don't get prosecuted. So they stay out there. Person just says, I want my money back, let me go. And the person scrambles to do it and can't do it. And then an attorney says, give us the money back or we're gonna sue you. And so they find the money somehow, but they've got, know, hundreds of other clients that don't know that that money is not available. And then there's
1: the case where you try to get your money back from somebody who's misappropriated your money and they're
0: bankrupt. That's right.
1: And there's nothing you can do about it. And believe me, unless it's a big case like this one was with
0: lots many, many, and many, lots of millions, of millions of
1: dollars. The SEC just doesn't get around to prosecuting. They're out there. And there's some, a matter of fact, I know of people who have done that type of who've basically taken money from their clients, and they're still in business doing investment advice someplace. Yeah, It's crucial that not only you get a statement, but that the statement come from a well-known third party, not some off-the-wall someplace that looks like it's important but isn't, and Look that you up. call there and say, do you have these investments for me? You actually contact them at some point. As part of a standard audit that's done on any organization, once a year, one of the key things that's done is contacting the bank or the custodian or whoever supposedly is holding the money for the organization and say, is it there? And people generally tend not to do that. They, they say, well, I don't understand that. Well, understand it. If it isn't a bank or a New York Stock Exchange member that's sending you the statement, there's a fairly good chance that the money may not be there. And that's just, and and these things go on for years and years and years and people lose tremendous amounts of money and they, I can't, I don't even remember the number of times this has happened over the years. That people have come in and lost, they've lost tremendous amounts of money. We look at it and say, this is, this is fake. And they have a lot of trouble believing it. And it doesn't make the headlines because the person who was doing it never got prosecuted.
0: Right. So
1: Um, beware.
0: And Yeah, so I think we've hit that one. We've got another kind of big news item. The infrastructure bill finally passed. We've been talking about this for over a year now as it's been built because Donald Trump was trying to build it at the end of his term. And then Joe Biden picked it up at the beginning of his. And it's gone from, under the Trump administration, a $3.8 trillion bill. For infrastructure, new infrastructure, to when Joe Biden stepped in, it was for 2.2 trillion. It's now been trimmed down to the net new spending in the bill is around half a trillion. 500
1: Five hundred billion.
0: hundred fifty ish new new money. So, and this is something we were talking about before the program about. Uh, I, I asked you how many different price tags you had found for the infrastructure bill. Um, and I I see three completely different numbers quoted at different places. The Guardian was saying uh, five, one uh, 1.2 trillion. Uh, no, that was Fox News that said 1.2 trillion. The Guardian said 555 million and the Wall Street Journal said 1 trillion. When you break it all down, it's 555 billion of new spending on roads and infrastructure and so on. Over and some five other stuff. Year Over, Over
1: a five-year period. Over a five-year period. That's right. So it's roughly two hundred billion dollars a year over the next five years, and I don't want to denigrate two hundred billion dollars, but in in light of the total budget, it is a pretty small amount of money. And this is important; it's critical that we get this infrastructure bill passed. It's critical that it we did put passed. it into effect, right? That that we get it in effect and we start fixing bridges and internet, and roads, and all the other things in our infrastructure that need to be fixed and need to be expanded. That's what will keep us going without it. We won't keep going
0: now at this in this on the same day, the house passed the $2 trillion education, healthcare climate package. That's really the budget. All that other stuff added into it is just labeling stuff on the budget. Don't get too upset yet about what's in that bill. That's not a final bill. It's gotta to go to the Senate now. They're gonna pass their own version of it, and then they're gonna to go to conference and make a Frankenstein out of whatever was passed in the Senate and the House. So we really still don't know what's in that bill. What we know in the, is in the infrastructure bill, and there's a lot of stuff for roads and bridges. Bridges. There's stuff for broadband in there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of other cool little features in there that look like a different form of infrastructure than most people are used to. So people will go back to the conservative, extremely conservative view of that infrastructure is only roads. And they get upset when broadband is brought up. But that is the, I mean, we actually, in the early 90s, when they were talking about this new interweb, it was called the information superhighway. It really is. That's where a lot of the business is. I mean, a vast amount of business goes through broadband. So calling it infrastructure simply makes sense. It is a physical thing that needs to be laid out in a lot of cases, and it makes sense.
1: There's word going around, and I find it to be fundamentally inaccurate, that only a minority of this bill is going to the infrastructure. That's not true. Uh, The breakdown includes 621 others of the... Total of both bills, both sides of the bill, extending existing infrastructure, which, by the way, largely bills, which largely were passed under the Republicans, and adding another $550 billion to it. $621 billion for transportation, $400 billion for home care services, $300 billion for manufacturing, and $180 billion for research and development. Now, there's also $85 billion to modernize public transit. $80 Eighty billion for Amtrak, fifty billion to safeguard critical infrastructure, and twenty billion to improve road safety. There is, there are emails floating around saying that that is an infrastructure. Well, it yeah. is.
0: And and if you just, I'm, by the emails floating around, by the way, I got one from Representative John Carter. Uh, I got one this morning you know, for immediate release, and it talks about twenty five percent of the total funding of this will actually go to infrastructure. Um. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to, to hammer on John Carter. He's the local um, United States federal representative. He represents District 31 in Texas. Uh, and we've had him on the program lots of times, way, way back in the past when he was first running for office. and And we're on pretty good terms with him. I think. I, I think. Back in August, the Senate passed this bill in a bipartisan way, it was a 69 to 30 vote. A lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans supported it. Democrats and Republicans opposed it. You couldn't really find a party line for the vote. But because it was used as a bargaining chip to say we won't pass this unless the other big spending bill gets passed, it was used by Nancy Pelosi against the progressives in her party which caused the conservatives in the Republican Party to suddenly look at a bill that passed totally bipartisan, which a few months ago, John Carter was saying, is this a great thing and we need to get it passed. It hasn't changed since then. It's still, it's the same bill. But because it was being used as a political bargaining chip, there's a different vocalization from the Republicans on what the bill is. If you just read the news from the Republicans in August, you'll get the true story don't read the stuff from the democrats today about it either because the progressives are talking about how horrible it is and the extreme right wing is talking about how horrible it is that generally means if both extreme ends hate it it's probably a good thing uh i know i've just probably made a bunch of enemies on both extreme ends of the parties but that's generally what we look at so there's emails floating around that talk about only 25% of the total funding is for infrastructure. Well, actually, well,
1: you, actually, actually, there's
0: one that says 7%. Oh, well, yeah. So it just depends on how you do your math and what you call infrastructure. Some people would say that broadband is not infrastructure because it's not a canal. <laughs> and originally, there was this this actual argument, not an email form, took place in the 1880s about railroad not being true infrastructure. That canals and and ports are true infrastructure. You can't just come around and say putting these pieces of metal on the ground is infrastructure. So this is an argument that continues with every new mode of technology. That's not infrastructure. When we talk about an infrastructure bill, it's investment for the future, for future business growth, for future commerce. And that obviously includes broadband these days. And if you go to the extreme left wing, they say it doesn't. If you go to the extreme right wing, they say it doesn't. That generally means I'm pretty comfortable with my statement there. So those are two big pieces of news at the big macro scale. Now, what does this mean to us? Um... Infrastructure spending over the next five and 10 years, additional spending on existing programs, don't expect to see the economy suddenly leap into the sky and fly higher than it did because infrastructure takes a long time to build. Bridges need to be fixed. Dams need to be reinforced. Roads need to be replaced and rebuilt. Broadband needs to have holes Dug in very long stretches in rural areas. It's gonna take us years to get this done. But this is the kind of stuff that we like to see as a reinvestment into our economy. The only individual that can do this is the government. I mean, we can reinvest at a business level and say, I'm going to um, put in a port for broadband. But if the broadband doesn't get to your office, it's not like you can call up company that does broadband and say, I would like you to um, put in a ditch and fill it for the next 13 miles from your node point to me by myself, that would be tens of millions of dollars to get broadband to your office. So we did this for television. We did this for, um, when television, I'm talking about cable. Uh, We did it for telephone. We did it for electricity because there are people that live far enough away that it's really not profitable for an electric company to put all the poles in, to go out all the miles, to give electricity to a house that's 30 miles away from everybody else. Well, the federal government steps in and says, all right, we've got to lay that out so that we've got business opportunity everywhere. I mean, who pays for the road that goes out there? Well, the state or local or federal government does. So it's all infrastructure. Anyway, I think we've probably beaten that one up enough too. Um, What's your next one on the list?
1: There's another number out there that is an example of when you see a number that looks like it's bad, and you dig down into the depth of it, it turns out to be good.
0: And vice Um, versa sometimes.
1: Yeah. The U.S. trade deficit hit a fresh record this month, this last quarter and this last month. It's, uh, was up a bunch,
0: a bunch, a bunch.
1: And, uh, it's the highest it's ever been. And the first reaction, I think we, we have in June of 2021, uh, it was 73.23 billion. September 21, it was 80.93 billion. Um, so it's up. And the initial reaction
0: was. Can, can I jump in there and just say what that, what we were talking about. The balance of trade is when what we sell as companies, that are based inside the borders of the United States and manufacturing inside the borders of the United States. How much did we import? How much did we export outside the borders and then into the borders? And we have a negative. So we imported into the borders more than we exported. There's problems with those numbers lots of times in that a lot of times, like Ford is an American company that's manufacturing in Mexico and in Canada using parts made inside the borders of the United States. So what's the import and what's the export there? So there's some problems with the GDP, but it's a good number to look at because it's been consistently uh, done. And then the GDP results with the balance of trade at the end of it. So the balance of trade is a GDP number that comes out that says, here's where our trade is. It has a direct result in the GDP calculation. So go ahead.
1: What I wanted to say was, the trade deficit is a good thing. First off, we can get into that, and we have in the past, there really is no trade deficit. We export as much as we import. We have to. We've been doing it. We theoretically have had a trade huge trade deficit for 40 years. If it was going to hurt us. We'd be the weakest economy in the world. It would have blown up instead we with the strongest. And we can, if somebody wants to argue with that, I can... Certainly spend some time on it and show you, but that's beside
0: the point. The vast majority of our economy is not imported. It's not exported. It's here. That's what we talk about in a consumer-based economy.
1: There's been a shift and we're seeing the results of the shift. Earlier, the stuff that was coming in the United States was mainly consumer goods. We had a lot of money. We were in lockdown and we spent a lot of money on things, on stuff. That's the economic term for that. Yes. We spent a lot of money on stuff and a lot of it's manufactured outside the United States. And almost I as I bought some stuff recently and got some stuff for my birthday and I was looking at it and I yet to find anything that was manufactured in the United States.
0: You you got that's, two gifts yesterday that were absolutely manufactured. Uh one of them the was manufactured the one was manufactured. Uh, by a tree inside the United States. And one was manufactured before there was a United States, but in the same general But that was
1: an import into the United States because obviously the United States was...
0: No, the the United States was imported into the continent after that rock was made. So he got some gifts.
1: What Jake is trying to say is his two small children gave me presents yesterday for my birthday. One of them gave me a pine cone and the other one gave me a rock. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. But those were not imported.
0: That's all I'm saying.
1: What I want to get to here, if I can get to it, please, is the imports have shifted in recent months. Consumer goods have sagged. We're seeing a reduction in imports of consumer goods. Apparel's dropped 2.1% compared with where they were in 2020. Meanwhile, here's where the demand is and here's stuff that's being imported. The imports of iron and steel were up 93% in the first 9 months of 2021 compared with last year. Wood imports rose 79%. What does that mean? We are building things in the United States. And we're importing things to add value to them in the United States. So when you import wood or steel and you build something out of it to sell, the thing you built out of it to sell is worth a lot more than the raw wood or the the steel.
0: Right. We're not importing the completed things anymore we're we're importing ingredients for the completed things
1: this indicates what you'll see and this is part of the fact we we earlier we're talking about the fact that uh productivity dropped because we're hiring a lot of people this is all tied together we're importing a lot of stuff to build things that are far more expensive some of which will get exported by the way right you don't import a lot of steel unless you got something to build with it car companies are not importing steel if they don't think they're going to get the chips to build the cars correct so this is a really this is one of those cases where this record trade imbalance if you dig down into it it's it's a tremendously it's a tremendous piece of good news it means that the United States economy is revving up and we need more raw materials to build things with so that we can sell them and that is a very very healthy condition and again there is no real trade imbalance and we can go in it take about half a show to explain that. <laughs> We manufacture something and export it that doesn't get counted in the exports, and it is literally our most valuable export by a long shot. And it's just there's an assumption in the trade deficit. There's an assumption in the GDP. There's a lot of assumptions out there that we're still on the gold standard, which we aren't, thank God. We are on a completely different standard. Money is completely different from what we intuitively think it is. And as a result, we're actually, the United States is the growth in the United States is wonderful and we're doing some wonderful stuff. And I guess we can move on to the next subject. Oh yeah. 401k contributions. If you're one of those people who has a 401k and you like to uh, max it out, uh, your new maximum 401k contribution is $20,500.
0: With a step up. If you're above 50 years old, do you know what the step up is? Uh, I think it's, four oh one K um ketchup well on IRAs ketchup
1: contribution. IRAs remain the same six thousand dollar uh and six thousand five hundred dollars in ketchup yeah. yeah
0: the the six thousand five hundred ketchup is on the four oh one K's um yeah so it's I don't it's a thousand dollar ketchup 000, on the um
1: I think the twenty thousand five hundred is just the flat maximum no matter how old you are.
0: On a 401k. And I may that's, be wrong, right. but I think that's correct. That's great. not right. Okay. That's not right. It is 20500 Uh The IRS announced on November 4th, uh, top off at 20500 Plan participants age 50 or older next year can contribute an additional 6500 Oh, okay. So for them, it's $27,000 that they can max contribute to. Uh, and at the same time, when we're talking about all this inflation, we didn't raise the cap on how much you could put into your IRAs. It's still 6000 right. and a catch-up of 1000 so what can you take out of this? Um, after all of all of the uh, stuff that we've talked about, possible inflation going on and uh, Federal Reserve issues, comes back to what we said earlier. It's the same thing that we said pre-pandemic. It's the same thing that we said 10 years ago. It's the same thing we said 20 years ago. This is stuff that doesn't change. First priority is to get your savings in cash, in in the bank, in a comfortable place to cover your near-term emergencies. Make sure that you're living within your means and not overfilling your credit cards. And then start allocating money to your future. Get well diversified. If you have enough money that you're having difficulty figuring out where to do that and how to do that, seek some fiduciary help. We are prejudiced. We're fiduciaries. That's how we do it. To make our living, uh, but we tend to think that what does fiduciary mean? It means somebody that's put you way ahead of themselves, that, that you are first interest, if not sole interest in the conversation, and that needs to come in writing. Then get well diversified, figure out what you're trying to accomplish, and that's where you're going. And we're about out of time. Unfortunately, uh, we had to disconnect with Jeff because the connection was so bad, But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have locally available, uh, there's a voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week at 947-254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same voicemail on the weekend, real live people during the week at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there, read our past newsletters. You can uh, listen to our radio program going back lots of years. You can listen to a podcast of our program wherever you look for podcasts. We're in all the major providers.